Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Curran. Father Nagel, would you please lead us in a scripture and a prayer? One of my, actually, this is a great passage, one of my favorites from Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he may grant you in accord with the riches and of his glory to be strengthened with power from his spirit in the inner self, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, rooted and grounded in love, may have, stre- have strength to comprehend with all the holy ones what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Gracious God, I do ask your blessings upon us today as we talk and we share our thoughts, our faith um, with one another and with those who are listening, that the faith of all involved here, all those that we reach might be nurtured and might grow and expand, that we might all be filled with the fullness of your own life, Lord. And we ask this through Christ our Lord, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Father Nagel. I appreciate that. Well, uh, today on the program, uh, I was uh, what I typically do when we try to put together an outline for a program, um, we had um, sort of teed up the idea that we were going to do another um, book club. We were going to cover um, Father Spitzer's book on Christ versus Satan in our daily lives. But we decided to hold off on that because we didn't want to miss out on having the, the richness of another voice, Father Lewis's voice here in the room. And I'm thinking, okay, well, what would I want to do then? I, I, I have Father Nagel all to myself here. And I'm like, you know, there have, some, there have been some like big changes that happened in your own priestly life, Father Nagel. So right. um, I, I'm going to ask you about that. Like, what's that like? How does that all work out? How do, how do these assignment things come down? Um, you know, did you, were they, did they pull straws and that's how you ended up, uh, in, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So I know a lot of Catholics wonder about that sort of thing, okay. but then I have, um, I've got some websites open and those are connected to, uh, the program that I did on Friday. The program I did on Friday, Father Nagel was on, uh, the top 10 things that loving fathers do for their children. And so it was uh, a list that gave me a chance to like reflect on, oh, this is what they say. Here's how I would maybe agree with that or I would change it or adapt it. So I'm not going to give you those. I've got other questions that are, what are some good questions I should ask a Catholic priest? What are some clever questions to ask when interviewing a Catholic priest? What are questions, what are off limits to ask a priest? These are really interesting. You can find anything on the internet, Father Nagel. So Uh get ready, buckle up. Uh, we're I'm in for, nervous. I think, uh, an enjoy- <laughs> I don't think you're going to get, I can't imagine you really getting nervous no, in this kind of setting, but not. this would be fun. So let me just first ask, uh, you about the, the change that's happened and right. for folks that are listening, you've been with me now for, I don't know what, 10, over 10 14 years, 14 years, 14 years doing sound years. insights. Amazing. Yeah. And I think that all of those years you've been at Holy, um, Holy family. family in Kirkland. Yeah. Up until a month ago. Right. And so um, for, for Catholics who are listening, I know that they're aware that priests uh, get assigned and then they can get moved. But would you just kind of like peel back the lid a bit and help us understand, like, how does that happen? When does that happen? Is canon law involved? Is the bishop involved? What about obedience? And who has a voice? And, and how does that all work out? Well, it's, it is interesting. Now, it is true. Priests, canon law is involved. Priests do get moved. Um, now, each different diocese has its own rules. The, the The bishop of the diocese can set the rule whether some in some places you just go to a parish, you're assigned to a parish, and it's kind of, if it's not broke, don't fix it. You just stay there as long as it works out. There's no term limits, so to speak. Now, in other dioceses in America, there are term limits, and we in the Archdiocese of Seattle do have term limits, which is usually six years for a pastor, but renewable for another six. So the normal term would be a six or 12. Although, again, ultimately the bishop could ask you to move no matter what. Um, you know, again, you do have obedience and the good of the church sometimes requires you to move midterm. But the norm would be six, to 12, six or 12 years. Now, in my case, it was kind of interesting because I actually stayed 14 years. One of the reasons was after 12 years, we had a turnover in principle in my school, and I wanted to, you know, the, the new principal was brand new, never been a principal before, and I wanted to um, help with that transition, so I asked for a one-year extension. 
And then COVID hit. And then Archbishop Aitchin said, nobody's moving. You know, we're just going to, everybody stays because this is a weird situation. So I had a two-year extension for kind of strange reasons. But after 14 years, I was, I was asked to move. Now, how does that happen? How do you choose? And how, how, do, you know, how do you end up where you, where you end up? What, what's the process there? So there's a, there's a priest personnel board in the archdiocese that includes the bishop, the auxiliary bishops, a couple of lay people who are involved uh, in the vicar for clergy office. And then there's four priests uh, who are elected uh, to the board. I am, I was until very recently, just a few days ago, I was moved off the board, but I have been on the, the personnel board probably of the Archdiocese of Seattle for probably 11, 12 years or so. No, more than that, 18 years probably. And so I was actually in the room, so to speak, uh, when this whole thing came up. I knew my term was coming up. What actually happens was, was that um, I was asked to leave the room when my name came in. I was going to say, I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah. so... You know, it's kind of strange. Uh, you've got these lists of, so you have all these lists of parishes that are coming open because priests retire, uh, their terms come up, um, they get sick, or, you know, something happens. And so you have priests uh, who are going to be, their terms are up, and you have parishes that are going to be open. And so then you start to play mix and match. Um, and it's, you just sit around the table and you just try to, hopefully this Holy Spirit's working too, but you, you try to match up priests for parishes. It's not a perfect situation because, again, um, you know, sometimes there's just we have one or two priests short than of the number of parishes. It it can be it can be difficult, but in my per- personal case, um, they said, "Hey, take a, take a walk. Um, we want to talk about you." So I left the room, and um, then after a period of time, I was called back in. And this happened actually a year and a half ago that I came back in and they, the archbishop said, I, we think we'd like you to go to St. Monica's Parish in Mercer Island, Washington. And again, this was right before COVID. This was January, February before COVID hit. And so I was ready to go back then, um, and, but it didn't happen. And so I came in back into the room, but going back to that, going back to the room and you know, it's a surprise. I was not expecting to go there. Um, so, uh, for various reasons, but, uh, in any case, I was happy to do it. Um, I had some experience with St. Monica's before and I knew it was a good parish and, and I was happy about, uh, they told me also, you know, who was going to go to Holy Family, uh, Father Brian DeLessie. And I was happy about that as well. So I didn't have, I didn't have a lot of say in that. It was, you know, again, I, um, that was something the archbishop had. He had, he had something special request there, and, and I think it was a great great idea for him to put uh, Brian Valesi there. So that's that's how it happened uh, in my own per- personal case. So I'm interested how often it happens that the promise of respect and obedience that a priest makes at ordination uh, that um, that comes into play in um, requests like this. And I guess I mean it in the following way. Um, I'm going to imagine that there are situations where a pastor um, is, let's say, finishing his assignment, yeah. finishing six or 12 years, and, and, and then gets brought into the room or gets communication and says, here's what we've discerned and here's what we're asking of you. And that there's pushback. Right. There's a sense of saying, you know, I just disagree with that discernment. I think that's a really bad idea. I won't flourish there or the, the community. I, I just think that this is not, this is not what God wants. And however they say that, and is that taken into account like early, often? Are there surveys? Are there like, do you like, is there a short list and say, here are the, the parishes that I'm really interested in? Mo, anything like that? So in the time I've been on the personnel board, I would say, that the way it really usually does work is that very occasionally a parish has opened up and put out there and said, hey, does anybody want to go to St. X? But usually, and it, they're not brought into the room, usually it's a phone call from the archbishop or the vicar for clergy saying, hey, and early on the process, it's, it's, it's not like it's a done deal and now, then, now it's coming from on high saying, okay, now here's where you are going to go. There, it's, the process begins in November, December, and it doesn't culminate until after Easter, usually, when the final results are posted. And so there's a month-long process, and some of the, there are negotiations in the sense of, 
that people are yeah at some point when you get the the new moves pretty solid what we think is going to work we'll start contacting the priests and saying and saying you know the archbishop would like you to go to the parish x and no and some people do push back it's just you described it pretty accurately saying i don't think i'll flourish here i don't think i could do that um, these these other circumstances and I would say, I've been on the board with uh, Archbishop Burnett, um, Sarton, and Aitchen, and I would say all, in all three cases, we're, we're, they're not trying to punish somebody or make somebody miserable. Um, there's not, you know, it's, it really is oftentimes, it, they, that is listened to. Um, I, I definitely do think so. And, and so there is a chance for them to talk with the Archbishop or the Vicar for Clergy and express their situation. Oftentimes it, it comes into, I don't, th you know, most of the priests are pretty, um, they, they just want to do the right thing. Most of them say, you know, I don't really see that happening. I don't think it's a good idea, but if the archbishop really wants it, I'm going to do what he wants me to do. So that's oftentimes the, the attitude. And um, then we talk some more. And, you know, honestly, sometimes we, you have to push and say, you know, I think, I honestly think this is, we really need you to go there. Just from their, their own, because sometimes the discussion is, I can't do that, but sometimes it is, I'd rather not do that. And there's a difference there, uh, because sometimes, um, you know, people don't think they could, or, they, or it's just that not their first choice, but that, that maybe the archbishop does have a good discernment here. So it's, it's not a black or white, uh, rigid sort of thing. Um, there is discussion. Um, there is sometimes priests go to places where that wouldn't be their first choice or even a, a third choice. But rarely do people, the, the actual, I have never heard of an archbishop uh, really call obedience itself saying, under obedience, you are going to go there because that, that's counterproductive. Um, you don't want a priest to go in some place that he just says, I can't go to them. Yeah, it's so interesting. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I hear stories like from priests who, will um, like be advocating to stay longer. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. I know 12 years is, you know, is the typical term and you stayed 14 because of the, these extraordinary circumstances, but you know, there are priests that have stayed on a lot longer than that. Yeah. Oh yeah. 18, 19, 20 years. Um, and, and there's a, I don't know if there's just a particular sense of I'm so deeply rooted here that look, if you're going to move me from this assignment, I'm actually at the retirement age, and so I'm happy to just retire. So now it's your choice. You can allow me to be a pastor here, or I'll just retire. So what would you rather have me do? <laughs> that, and that, that is a real situation. You know, that's reality. Yeah, but, but also, I think most bishops, certainly the archbishops in Seattle that I've experienced, most of the, most of the time they realize that too, and they, they realize, hey, at age 70 or whatever, it's hard to start up again. If the fellow wants to just keep on going and it's going okay, let him go. So the the terms are not hard and fast. Um, and there's negotiation sometimes between for a third term. We've had that uh, happen sometimes. It is a individual circumstance. The, the the terms are guidelines. They're not set in stone either. And in the the idea of retirement and the difficulty of negotiating new parishes at uh, older age, that's all taken into consideration. And so. It's, you know, there, there are sometimes guys, who, the opposite problem is they want to hang on so long. And sometimes the Archbishop has to say, you know, I, I think it's time to retire um, because they just, they just, they want to keep on being pastor. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And I've, I've enjoyed the 18 years I've been on the, the, the board because I've seen from the inside, I, I haven't had to make the decisions. I'm not the Archbishop. And yet I, I've seen, and I, and I think I can, I could also uh, sort of advocate for people from the presbyterate, from the priesthood, um, in terms of what they would like or what they could do or not do. So it's been good to be in the inside there. And, and but I, 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 I come away, and some of my brother priests may, may disagree with the fruits of this process, but I, I do come away with it thinking there is, a, there is an attempt to dehumanize to, to, to it and to, to do the best for a parish and priests, but it's just sometimes it's difficult. Well, and, and you know, it's uh, like from the outside, as we just like sort of watch assignments, right. there does seem to be a, a tremendous like sense of like this resonates. Like, oh, I can see how this priest would really flourish in that parish as compared to this other priest who is going to flourish in that type of community. It's not like it's like rocket science from that standpoint. 
from certain assignments that uh, I think for, for folks who know priests and know parishes, that that's clear. It's, um, it's in other kinds of situations where um, there's more of like, a, wow, that's really very interesting. And so I've got two of those situations that I'm going to ask you about, Father Nagel, um, when we come back. And the first is uh, the newly ordained. Like, uh, hey, how do they get assigned? And what's some of the strategies involved in terms of like discerning and plant, uh, putting them into a parish for uh, their initial assignment? And then the second is about um, our, our auxiliary bishop, who just was named right. an ordinary, uh, the Bishop of Reno, Nevada, Bishop Muggenberg. And so I would love to get any sort of insights into, like, wh- what, what is the church doing there around like making someone an auxiliary bishop and then from auxiliary to an ordinary. And, and was that expected? Was it a surprise? What's, how is that all sort of working itself out in the, arch, in the Archdiocese of Seattle? But we'll talk about that after the break in a minute on Sound Insight. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to the program. This is Tom Kern. I'm with Father Kurt Nagel. And Father Nagel, now that I've got you all to myself here, this has been a really, <laughs> uh, it's a kind of a great opportunity to ask you some uh uh, interesting questions, and I'm starting off by taking advantage of the fact that you've been on the, uh, is it the priest personnel board yes, or yes. the priest personnel board for 18 years, and so you have this uh, sort of behind the scenes insight that you're sharing discreetly as 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 we would expect uh, the kinds of things that go on in in, in a bishop's mind and at, at a diocesan level when it comes to uh, priest assignments. So. Just before the break, I mentioned uh, two other situations I wanted to ask you about. The first one was about the newly ordained uh, and how having someone young uh, assigned to a parish, what are some of the factors that are taken into account in terms of giving a priest a first assignment? And it is important. Uh, First assignments are important, right? You want to get off to a good start. Now, that being said, you know, one of the the challenges for this, this whole process is the priest shortage. Uh, and by that, I mean, you have to plug holes at some level. Um, and that sounds horrible and sounds kind of crass and stuff like this, but there's some truth to it. That being said, I know the archbishops have always wanted to let the new guys land well. So the, the factors are, as you're looking for a parish to put the new, new priest, newly ordained priest in, is, first of all, so the practical side is, it needs to be a parish that's big enough and needs two priests. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty rare that we just sort of put somebody in a parish that doesn't really need it, but just for, for the sake of, you know, for whatever other reason. So it's usually probably going to be a bigger parish. It's probably going to be, um, if it's probably not going to be a small, one small rural parish or one small uh, city parish. It's probably either going to be a big suburban parish or uh, sometimes a cluster of, of uh, several parishes that need two priests. The cluster idea is not a great uh, we found that you know it's, it's not the first choice um, because sometimes you know we want the we want the newly ordained to live with the pastor and so to be able to to learn and be mentored in terms of the priesthood as they start up um, their ordained ministry. So one of the things is the size of the parish and the nature of the parish and is it a healthy parish or healthy assignment? By that I mean is is you know the community pretty united? Do they have a good sense of the priesthood? The second thing is, who's the pastor? Who's going to be the mentor for this priest? Uh, so there are certain, there are certain priests who just historically, uh, Jim Lee in St. Michael's or Mike McDermott in St. Charles Borromeo, uh, Gary Zender at St. Louis. I mean, some of these, these are just kind of the, the great pastors of our archdiocese. And so you send, they just, they're mentorship pastors. And so that's kind of, there, there are only so many spots these days that, that really could take a uh, newly ordained. So there, there's a tendency to, to kind of rotate in and out of the same parishes. That's kind of the, the mode of operation for us. But that's, those are the kind of the priorities in terms of the newly ordained. It's so interesting because I can remember back like 30 years ago how um, it, these factors, the things that you're bringing up, um, had some of the same commonality, but because there just were more priests around, it was easier to um, almost have like a couple of parishes that were like almost specially designed to receive the newly ordained because you knew they were they were going to get sort of lavished upon in sort of the the best of what Catholics would want to to show a newly ordained 
in terms of yeah. giving them a soft landing and giving them wonderful opportunities to like teach and preach and be engaged in youth ministry, sort of like giving them a parish where they can rotate around into yeah. different types of ministries. Uh, that's how I remember it back then, but now there seems to be like that's counterbalanced by the pastoral urgency of we got a lot of people here and we need a second priest. There's some truth to that. I think that looking back on the whole, there have been some misfires in terms of assignments um, for the newly ordained. And oftentimes it's, it is just the, the challenge of the cluster model um, because you need somebody there. Um, it can also be a challenge. There's, there's other needs too. For instance, being able to speak Spanish. Um, that a, a priest's ability or, or, or not, uh, not having the ability to speak Spanish figures into it as well. But it is a reality that there are, um, you know, there are the needs for a second priest, and that we, he, that limits us somewhat. So it's. Uh, I'm going to move us on to the to the next question because I'm never going to get to the 18 questions I have for you. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to uh, pick up with uh, the question of the moving of a bishop uh-huh. because we have uh, here in the uh, Archdiocese of Seattle. Well, we had two. Uh, bishops, and now one of them, Bishop Dan Muggenberg, has been uh, moved, elevated, has uh, been uh, shifted to the Diocese of Reno, Nevada. And love to get your sort of, um, like for folks who are listening, like, how does that happen? Did Bishop Dan say, hey, I, I, I'm kind of tired of being here in Seattle. Any, <laughs> anybody got an opening? Did he apply for the job? Like, how does that all work itself out? And, and I, I can gladly give you my thoughts. I'm not I'm not the expert. I, I don't have inside information here, but I, I would say this, that um, Bishop Malkeberg, who was a, a wonderful bishop and will be a great bishop of Reno, I really do think he'll be great. Um, and it's, it was a surprise to me in terms of the actual day that it was announced. I, I, I just opened my email and saw that, and it's, you know, wow. Uh, no, they have no, no clue that was going to come down today. But it was not a surprise that he got made an ordinary. I think that um, he's a really competent bishop, et cetera, and he's uh, ready to go. But he was uh, a bishop in Tulsa, I mean, a, a priest in Tulsa uh, about five years ago, I think, was made auxiliary bishop of Seattle. He, he was somebody who just had a lot of gifts. And so, and I don't know, maybe Archbishop Sarton himself or somebody at the time just noticed him. So what happens is anytime a bishop is named, there's, there's uh, kind of a a polling of the bishops of the area, um, and they 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 given names to the papal nuncio in Washington D.C. of priests they think could be possible bishops and might do a good job, and then so then these names are uh, if if your name's on that list, then the uh, nuncio sends from Washington sends out all these letters. Uh, these sort of secret letters to people you might know or people of the archdiocese saying, hey, what do you think about Father Smith or John Doe or whoever it is? And, and so they gather all this, sort of they consult um, laity as well as clergy uh, of, the, of the diocese in which the priest is, and they form a file on this fellow um, of, you know, what's he like, what's his strengths, what's his weaknesses, all these sort of things. And then this is again for this would have been what happened with Daniel Muggenberg when he was Father Muggenberg trying to you know, become an auxiliary bishop. Eventually, um, and again, this is something that I don't know how the actual name is decided. Um, it's a human process as well as the Holy Spirit. So, you know, you know, which which other bishops know you and think you might be a good 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 candidate. But eventually, um, you know, three names are placed on a turna, uh, three three possible. Uh, bishops, uh, three priests who could be possible, uh, possibly fill the, the sea, and then is given, sent off to, uh, to Rome to make a decision. And there's a, there's a committee in the, the Congregation of Bishops to, that goes through it all, and they come up with a suggestion, and the Pope either can take it or not, or find somebody else. Or Usually, I'm sure he takes the top suggestion from the committee most of the time. Now, in terms of auxiliary bishops becoming actual ordinaries, there's, a, I'm sure, a different process there in some sense because he's already a, an auxiliary. But I'm sure there are other, for the opening, I'm sure there are other priests who are uh, sort of vetted to see who's going to go there. But it's not, it's, it's not surprising that an auxiliary bishop who's already sort of been a practice as, as an assistant bishop to an archdiocese or diocese, that he would be named because he has experience. He's, he's been a bishop in lots of, you know, he hasn't been in charge of a diocese, but he's been a bishop working in the administration of a diocese. And so... I don't know. 
I, I, I don't know what the story of Reno is in terms of the actual, how, how did that happen? But I do know this, that Bishop Muckenberg, he comes, Reno, you might think, well, that sounds like a casino town, but it's really a rural diocese. Uh, you know, it's other than outside Reno itself, it's all small towns, uh, high desert country, that sort of stuff. And Bishop Muggenberg came from Tulsa, you know, and he, he grew up in actual western Oklahoma. I mean, he's coming from that sort of rural background. So it's, it's probably a pretty good fit in terms of, in terms of uh, just knowing that kind of Catholicism. So that's all I, that's really the, you have other questions asked me, but that would be sort of my first take on the question. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's like when I, when I learned that um, Bishop Muggenberg was assigned here to the Diocese of, um, uh, the Archdiocese of Seattle, um, I remember I went to Mass one morning at, uh, I was at the morning Mass at St. Francis in Burien, and um, uh, the, the priest, Father Hayatsu, the pastor, uh, during the homily said, oh no, uh, it was... I think it was, yeah, during the homily, he said, so, well, we have a, a new auxiliary. And, and he butchered the last name, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which was yeah. great. And I'm like, what? Wait a minute. I know him. And it was really neat. So afterwards, I went and I looked, because it was a Tuesday, and Tuesday mornings is when the, Oftentimes, know, the Pope will yeah. announce. Yeah, they'll, they'll identify who these bishops are. So I ended up reaching out to him later that day. Congratulations, you're coming this way. Super exciting. Um, but um, I, it, it was a little bit of a surprise to me. That because uh, I, I my natural inclination or natural experience is that um, you know priests move right into becoming a bishop as an ordinary, uh -huh. especially when it's a different diocese. Right. Like uh, when I think of auxiliary bishops, I tend to think of very large archdioceses like Chicago and Boston or New York that have like three or four right. or five auxiliary bishops, and they tend to be priests that were like prominent and, and had significant roles typically in chanceries um, in those dioceses. And then from there, they'll move from kind of growing up, the, up those ranks into, the, you know, into right. an auxiliary role and then externally to the role of an ordinary. So I was a little surprised. And so you kind of um, helped sort of like close a loop there in terms of that um, Archbishop Sarton may have had some awareness of um, Bishop Muggenberg as a pastor uh -huh. in terms of like, what are those needs? Or uh, I wouldn't be surprised that Bishop Muggenberg was doing an amazing job as a pastor at a large right. parish yeah. in Tulsa. Yeah, I think he was, you know, just, just, uh, you know, sort of like I, I thought of him as sort of like Archbishop Brunette in terms of, again, coming right. from a large parish and being very successful in um, administrating that plant, right. That, yeah. uh, that many buildings, et cetera. Um, so, I, I had a sense that it would have been more natural for him to come in as an auxiliary bishop and then be named the archbishop. Sort of like a, um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the word just flew out of my head. Um, when a, co a coadjutor, a coadjutor bishop yeah. um, for a time. But, you know, lo and behold, Archbishop Achen, uh, who was two years behind him in the seminary, um, ended up being named uh, the archbishop, the successor to Archbishop Sarton. I, I would say, though, that didn't surprise the, the, What I would notice about that, though, is I was not expecting um, Bishop Muggenberg to succeed um, Archbishop Sarton because um, that usually, usually it's not an auxiliary of the place going straight up to the, uh, to the ordinary. You, because usually somebody... Um, especially in archdiocese, you, you'll have somebody who had been an ordinary before. Um, and so, you know, it's somebody who's been in charge of a diocese. An auxiliary bishop has not. And so if, to make that, that's a pretty big jump. And plus, a, another challenge might be that, you, that you're on the par, with, in some ways, peers with the other auxiliary bishops, and now you're their ordinary. Although, again, you're supposed to be able to handle that, you know, hopefully with your humility and just basic maturity. But it didn't surprise me. I, I, I was expecting um, somebody who had already been an ordinary to be the, the next archbishop. So that, that wasn't a big surprise for me. You know, that's, that's a good point. It's almost like Bishop Thomas, right, going right. from exactly. auxiliary here, or, yeah. uh, or uh, Bishop Tyson, yeah. you know, going to Helena, going yeah. to, uh, and then Las Vegas, and then going to right. Yakima. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of an interesting world, right, right. just trying to navigate through that 
that whole reality of um, what's that like uh, as an auxiliary bishop, uh, and then moving to be a bishop. So let's let's pray for him. Now, would you anticipate that he will be replaced? Because now there's going to be a gap in terms of uh, a bishop and uh, the functions and activity that uh, Bishop uh, Muggenberg was fulfilling. Well, I know I know the Archbishop Aitchin. And I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, but he says, you know, I really don't want to get out into the parishes. I want to, I'm in the office a lot, but I, I want to be out there. I want to be out there where the people are. I want to sort of the action is. And, um, and so I know he was planning, and I think he's taken some steps even, to have the two auxiliary bishops take an even larger role in terms of the administration of the diocese. Um, so that freeing him up to do, you know, more pastoral stuff. And so, although I, I can't, I, again, I... I I, you talk to Archbishop Aitchin about how much and he knew about this and when, but I, I, at some level, I think that he would want, I would think he would want somebody to replace uh, Bishop Muckenberg if that same plan is going to be in place of the way he, would, he foresees the administration of the diocese. But it's not always the, the Archbishop's um, call either. The, Rome has to agree to uh, open a spot for an auxiliary bishop. You can't just say, hey, Rome, I want another one. Um, you know, send me two more. It, it's, 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 it is an, a request that you have to make to say, hey, uh, I would like it if you could form a position here that you would fill uh, for a, new, a second auxiliary bishop. And Rome then has a choice to, again, say yes or no. So interesting. That's Father Kurt Nagel. He's the pastor of St. Monica's on Mercer Island. I have to get used to saying that. Yeah, Father. so do I. Uh, <laughs> so um, I'm going to ask you one more question about the, you. We talked about the transition from... I want to ask a question about transition two, and then we'll go to a break. And so here's my question. Uh, I, I love to ask the sort of philosophy of um, the new pastor, because I, I remember some pastors have the mindset that say, don't do anything the first year. You know, right. just you're there to listen and learn and meet people and understand things so that there's no sense of dramatic change. And and there are others who say, don't make any changes for the first week. <laughs> now, I'm being a little yeah. kind of tongue-in-cheek there, but the idea that, oh, well, you'd wait that long to make a, a change, especially in some matter that you consider like really critical, why wouldn't you like a, a, engage more uh, as a pastor? And even if it if it differs in some ways from the previous pastor, well, no, this is you— bringing the gift that you're going to bring to the parish. So um, you can speak about this in terms of yourself, but if you want, you could speak about just in terms of like sort of the range of ways that you uh, have experienced priests um, operating in this way when they get a, a new assignment. Well, I think I, I don't have a rigid sort of timeline or, or uh, et cetera. I, I think there's some wisdom to saying, well, let's see everything out through a liturgical year in terms of liturgy and things like that. Let's, let me experience it first. I do think oftentimes it's a matter of, it's a matter of context at some level. You know, there are some things that I would move into a parish, say, oh, I, I, can, I really just can't, I can't live with, that because, live with that because it's against, you know, some norm or some, hopefully not canon law or, and it's, 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 believe me, with St. Monica's, there's no problems like that in terms of, of uh, you know, things I say, hey, this has to change because this isn't right. Uh, so there are some things certainly that you would change right away uh, if, if you found them. But I do think there's, the whole idea I think is, this is, this is not your parish yet, in a sense, at least not emotionally compared to the people. And, and you want to not be seen as someone who you know, thinks that he's superior to the way things are done here and that you're going to teach them and show them the right way, but that you're going to say, hey, this is a parish that's been operating for 100 years now or 50 years, whatever, and um, I'm, gonna, I'm coming in here to take it a, little, you know, a few more years, but, but I, I want to see what's happening because you guys are already doing things, and I want to I fit into your community as well as shape it. So I do think there's, some, there's, there's push-pull there. I do th also think that one of my principles is you don't take things away from the people, but you can add things to, for the people. Uh, because I think people, you know, if you if you cut things out or you stop things or you, those sort of things, you change something, that's a loss oftentimes. But you can, on top of everything that's happening already, you can add new stuff. Um, and they don't care about it. That's fine, usually. Because they don't have to participate if they, they don't want to. Um, you offer this class or you offer this new mass time. To take away mass is, is, is challenging. To add a mass, not so much. 
Uh, so again, it's I, I say go ahead and add stuff, but be careful about taking stuff away early on. So those are kind of some so of the interesting. Rules. No, I think that's uh, you know what I never heard that before said in the way that you just said it, and it it makes a lot of sense. It really does. So. That's a fascinating thing. Well, I hope, folks, that you're enjoying listening to Father Nagel as I'm interviewing him about things that maybe you don't ordinarily get a chance to hear about in, in such detail. And I hope that gives you a sense that you know the Church is moving forward in a way that attempts to, I believe, beautifully like weave together the work of the Spirit, the Spirit who created and enlightens human reason. So there are very reasonable, rational approaches that are taken but done in the light of faith and hopefully with that inspiration of, uh, of of the grace at work in the priest and in the priests and the bishop as they discern these things going forward we're up against a break when we come back more sound insight with father kurt nagel welcome back to the program this is tom Curran. i'm with father kurt nagel the pastor of saint monica's in mercer island i i remembered one more question i had father okay. nagel about um uh, about your your move to St. Monica's, and that is, um, I'm coming out there. Really, I'm coming that's out right. At the end of September. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I guess there was something you couldn't take away. <laughs> you know, one of the things about St. Monica's. Oh, was it something that you added? Is that something you added? It's added. It's something I added. Um, I yeah, it's a long story. Uh, another priest and I, Father um, Derek Lappy, uh, was also involved in this. I think um, you know that, and so. One of the interesting things about St. Monica's is it has this uh, classical, uh, uh, liberal classical education model school. And so, Tommy, you're going it, it to, it's, it's a broad, it, you're part of a speaker series, actually. I don't know if you know that or not. But it, 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 a, a series of speakers coming on to sort of speak on that general topic of, of uh, Catholic education today, how the, you know, the world, just the, all the stuff that I think you talk about on your show sometimes a lot. So anyway, you're going to be coming out there uh, as a speaker, and we're looking forward to it very much. But it, 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 that's happened since since I got there in terms of pulling the trigger on that. So um, that that was an ad, not a take. Well, and you know, it um, for me when I heard that you were assigned to St. Monica's, um, one of the first smiles that came on my face was not only that, oh, this will be such a huge blessing too to St. Monica's, to be able to build off of, you know, the wonderful pastoring that has been happening there, um, to you stepping in and continuing on with that work, that um, is the school and mm-hmm. the, the transition that the school has been making. And, and I know that you and I and Father Lewis have had sort of lively dialogues about um, the future of Catholic education uh, and Catholic schools, yeah. and that you have a passion for that and for seeing um, a, I don't know if the word is like a renewal, a revival, or a. Um, I yeah, I, I don't know the comes. right word, but but it's something's happening, and and just what the Holy Spirit wants to do with that. So that that is an exciting. There's lots of parts that are exciting about that the parish, um, but that's one of them certainly. The, the idea of okay, where's the school going to take us? You know, what's the Holy Spirit plan on this? Well, and I know that um, like when we. I'll just focus it on that one point that um, Catholic schools had uh, maybe done a, a, a strong, had had uh, strongly been able to live its reality as being open and evangelistic to welcome in anyone anyone who would come, and that would had you know a, a reasonable degree of fitting into uh-huh. the school, and that there was potentially a, a diminishment of the discipleship dimension of things and how. Right. The classical liberal arts model has been a sort of natural sifter because of its more rigorous requirements and and its maybe natural inclination towards uh, a, a stronger emphasis on Catholic identity in right. the very means of um, means manner methods of uh, education itself that it it tends to draw in um, Catholics that maybe are a bit more intentional. Right. Uh, in living out their faith and, and willing to make sacrifices, whether it's the the time the the you know to drive and, and to get them there, or their engagement level, or, or even just the cost right. of, of Catholic education, and that will tend to lead to a, a a more fertile environment in the schools themselves. Right, I think that's all all the case. That's so, why it's so exciting. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I'm excited to see how that, uh, how this is something that you'll bring a gift to the school, but also that you'll be seeing and watching what's happening here, and and then maybe become a herald for that uh, to the wider archdiocese in terms of impacting how Catholic schools are living their lives. So mm-hmm. we'll we'll see. You yeah. know, we'll see how that all works itself out. Okay. So I I know we have like less than 15 minutes here, and I have about 27 questions. <laughs> well, this is right. our typical typical show, Tom. Yeah, but this is great. I'm a scuba diver. I'm not a water skier. So <laughs> I, like I would rather take us deeper than skim across the surface of these things. Okay. All right. So now, full disclosure, these aren't questions that I made up. I went on the internet and I typed in, what are some questions that you'd want to ask a Catholic priest? So these are the ones that I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, ask you. So, um, you know, Get ready. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just kind of pulling them out, uh, out of, in order here. Okay. Easy one. What's your favorite book? You don't want me to say the Bible, right? <laughs> that doesn't count, right? Uh, of course, the Bible is first. Okay, mm-hmm. and then you can say the lectionary and the yeah, right, breviary. Right. So you can, all... Now you can kind of be flexing. You yeah, can flex is, if you... <laughs> right. But, you know... in tr- Oh, that's a good question. Is it so? Yeah, I'm, I'm taking all the obvious ones. You know, the um, I'm going to I'm going to take I'm going to answer. It not, it's not simple, but I'm going to I'll answer it um, at least. It, I, my I'm going to do a non a fiction a favorite work of fiction, but also a favorite um, spirituality book. Um, that the biggest impact I, I think a great spirituality book for me was The Interior Castle by Teresa Avila. I mean, that was a life changer for me. And so for, it's a personal thing for me in terms of, of, uh, of that book. I'm not, I'm not saying it's the best, greatest, or it's going to move everybody, but for me that was. Fiction, I, you know, I, I still have to come back with um, uh, The Lord of the Rings. Um, it's a cliche among Catholics of our era, I think, but it's, it's certainly true. I, and that was true from the time I was, I was a young teen, um, that that's and I've read that many times, and I think there's a depth to that. There's different levels of that book, and but I think it's a it's an epic of our age, uh, and so I think it's it's not simply a kids' book or a fantasy book. I think it's a I think it's an epic that's going to endure. And people, you know, I think you know people with sort of engaged in high literary criticism and stuff would turn up their noses, et cetera, at this. But I think this is going to endure. Um, like great literature, I think it's gonna it's it's gonna stick around. I think it's, you know, people will be surprised at how it does stick around. Um, and then I was trying to think of is there some sort of nonfiction book besides spirituality that was really a favorite? But I just off my head, I'm trying to think. And if if you mentioned it, I how probably... about just in your um, like uh, historical biographies? <sighs> Let me think. Uh, what's like I love John Adams, you know, by David McCullough. Yeah, I'm, again, I was, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to think, what's what's my what's a, a favorite there for me? And I'm I'm not something's not just j- jumping out at me in terms of something I just keep going back to. Um, so I just might pass on this question. If I I'll, I'll no, keep that's fine. You actually that was a very that was a very developed answer, uh, yeah. and I smiled because I. You know, favorite favorite work of fiction. You know, it's uh, I that was that would have been mine, Lord yeah, of the Rings as yeah. well. Um, but um, I, I didn't. I when you said Interior Castle, I I, uh, I was not. I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. I but I wouldn't have guessed it. I don't yeah. think I would have guessed. It. I probably would have guessed something by John of the Cross, um, well, just based on he, our I, conversation. He, he's been very impactful as well. But in terms of just the book. Uh, and sitting down and reading, I think the interior castle. There's something. Teresa of Avila's own it's personality. It's much more accessible it, than it, it, the Ascent of Mount Carmel, the right. Dark Night of the Soul. Those are so much harder to read, but they're so profound. They are, and but Teresa of Avila's personality comes out. It's attractive personality yes. in the book too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, so interesting. Okay, now I'm going to give you a choice here, Father. I've got the softball questions. That was an example of a softball. Oh, okay. I've got the mid-range questions, and then I've got the hard questions. The high inside so, heater, huh? Yeah, so if you're going to say, Tom, bring it on, then I'm going to ask a couple of questions that are in the harder basket. Can I so ask I'm going what to say, all three do you of the want questions the softball? are? Do, do you... I get a look at the questions before I ask? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, no, this is the, this is the whole... Let's start with a medium. Let's start with a medium. Okay, we'll go to a medium one. Do you buy your own food, or does someone do that for you? I buy my own food. Um, okay. I, I had a... 
I have, well, I, I won't go down that street, but I, uh, I, I have cooked myself, cooked for myself and bought my own food. But when I say cook, I mean microwave. Um, I'm not a cook. Uh, I, I have no interest in cooking. Um, I like food, but I don't like making it. But um, so I do buy my own food. Okay. So yeah. here's another quick one then. Do you, do your family and friends treat you differently because you're a priest? You know, my family, I don't think does. Not a lot. Um, I think I'm just still Kurt, brother, son, whatever. Um, and, and that's fine. That's fine. They just remember me being a mean brother to beat them up when they were little or something, you know. So <laughs> um, I don't think I got a lot of extra traction from them. I think my friends, you know, to be honest, a lot of my friendships from before priesthood and before seminary, they've kind of faded away. Um, and so... There are not too many people I know that, that really know me from before I was a priest or going to be a priest. So I think that's always been taken into account, really, in terms of the, the relationship. Um, most of my close friends are priests. Um, I think that's just kind of the nature of the life. Um, so I, 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 for me, that's kind of my reality. And so I don't think there's... I think it's a challenge, actually, if, if somebody was going to treat me differently, that, that affects the, the friendship at some level. Um, it's a different kind of relationship than a, a pure friendship, I would think. So I would say mostly no in terms of that question. Not, they don't treat me differently. Okay, great. Thank you. All right, I, we're up against I, the break. When we come back, Father, give you're going to have a chance. One. Give me a high, hard You want a couple hard ones? Well, okay, so we'll do that. I can do, yeah, the, buying your own food, that was pretty easy. Okay, that was, that was kind of more of the softball. So, okay, we'll make up for it with a curveball and a knuckleball after this break in a minute on Sound of the Pipe. Welcome back to Sound of the Pipe. This is Tom Curran with Father Kurt Nagel, the pastor of St. Monica's in Mercer Island. And, Father, you gave me permission. Now, again, these but are But sometimes these are I'm just going to wash the ball and I may not swing at it, but go ahead. Yeah, you might say I'm going to pass on that. So you do have – I'll give you kind of like uh, that – who wants to be a millionaire? You right. can like pass on a question if you want. Okay. All right. Okay. So this is the one of them. Do you agree with everything Pope Francis does? No. I mean, in terms of his the humanity, I I don't agree with with what with everything that anybody does, and so that's I don't find that hard. Now, if you talk about individual things, I mean, I, I bet first off, Pope Francis doesn't agree with everything Pope Francis does. Um, it, but if you're talking more in terms of of uh, you know documents or, or um, policies or stuff, there are things that I struggle with. Certainly, uh, there are things I agree with uh, that makes that make a lot of sense. Um, and so, yeah, are there things that in the last eight years I would definitely sure uh, definitely sure um, doesn't mean he's not a pope and he's not you know a holy man doing the the Lord's work the best he can. So, I would say not everything, but lots. And if you looked at all, most of the documents, I'd say most, yeah. Okay. All right, good. Well, and, and you know, I won't put you on the spot. Like, the real hard, hard heater would be to say, give me three things that he's done that you disagree with, right? Yeah. So I, we won't do that. We'll, yeah. we'll, uh, we won't go there. It, 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 there's no reason to do that. Okay, the, the next one is, do you find hearing other people's confessions to be emotionally draining, and how do you deal with that? You know, I really don't. Um... I don't find it emotionally draining. I I I do find it sometimes very um, edifying. Um, it, that's one of the things I said when I left my parish at Holy Family. I said, you know, I've been edified oftentimes. Sometimes and sometimes it's the penitents that do it. So I say, okay, um, just to see how they're they're interacting with God and their own sin and and their and God's grace and things. So there's there's edification certainly. But in terms of like, oh, that just gets me down and drains me. Um, no. Um, and I, I think there's some grace to the sacrament for me in that way. I say, you know, I'm not the one doing this. Christ is involved here. I can certainly use my human uh, reality and my gifts and, and et cetera uh, in the sacrament, but um, I, I don't. I, I don't find it something that's draining or that I have. I, I do find it's something that I. For instance, I, I, I do want to add confessions. I just, because I do think it's important, I said, you know, I want to do, I want to do as much as I can. Um, hear as many as I can. But it's, it's not something, you know, sometimes it's physically draining, but in terms of spiritually thinking about, you know, the weight of sin, I, I don't know. It's, that's, that has not been something that I've had to struggle against. So. No, that's fine. Okay, good. Um, I, I, it's a... Uh... 
it, it's a, va- a very natural thing when as soon as you be- said, well, no, I don't find it emotionally draining, then it, it's just really interesting to kind of dig into why. And I, I really like how you did that. Okay, a couple other of the more challenging questions. Um, the first is, do you ever feel sad when you see families with children? No, not at all. That's not, you mean for my, for my lack of children? Is he mean sad yeah. because of that? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I didn't make the question okay. up. I'm just kind of going no, down through this list. Not at all. Um, like kids, they're great. But in terms of thinking, boy, if only I had some. <laughs> no, that's, that, I think I got my discernment right. I, I, I think that, um, I think that's, that's one of the signs, I think. So, you know, I, I'm called to be a father, but it's just not that, not that biological father. And so that's never been a struggle for me. I mean, it doesn't mean that I, again, it's not that I hate kids or I don't want to be involved in the school or I, whatever, not at all. But it's never been a source of sadness um, thinking, boy, you know, what did I miss out on? That's not true. Okay, last question. This is, I think, more just, uh, it's almost a softball, but it, it can get, go to the depths. What motivates you the most as a priest? What motivates me most as a priest? Well, I think the, the driver is, again, uh, the idea of you know, Christ, serving Christ um, in, in the kingdom. Just say, you know, doing, doing what Christ the King asked to do for the sake of souls in his kingdom. It is a, that's, that's who I am. I'm, I'm, I'm a servant of Christ who's the King. He's the, my... He's my leader, and uh, to serve him is to be happy and to do what I'm supposed to do. So it's like, again, that motivator for the kingdom uh, in Christ the King to, to serve him well, and that means to serve of souls. So that's the motivator, I think. Sounds like uh, Philippians 121. Mm-hmm. For to me, life means Christ. Mm-hmm. Very good. So you answered that one quickly, so you have one minute oh, left. Oh, okay. Okay. Another question. <laughs> is your current, here's the last one. Is your current status... Does it match with the expectation you had when you joined the seminary? My current status. You know, it's, it's kind, kind of, of an awkward question, but it, the way that it's written, I mean. You know, I, yeah, I don't, if that means, you know, um, where I'm in, you know, a parish priest, et cetera, um, I, I, you know, I, I would say it, there's been surprises. It's probably a longer question than one, than one minute, actually, um, in terms of, has the priesthood in the church been exactly what I was? It's like a marriage. You know, you never marry the person you think you're marrying. It doesn't mean it's going to be a bad marriage, but it's just that you develop and stuff. And, stuff. and so, in general, I'd say yes. There would be some things I thought may have happened a little differently. Um, so, I guess that's where I'd leave it. Nice. Well, we'll have to leave it there because we're actually up against the end of our time together. Father Nagel, thanks for being willing to, to share so much so deeply and and in so many details. It was fascinating to me, and I've known you for how many years. I know that uh, listeners are blessed by that, so thanks for being willing to do this. Oh, my pleasure. All right. Folks, thank you for being with us today. Join me tomorrow for more Sound Insight.